so hello uh, everyone uh, my name is vikas agarwal and i am the founder of aif and pms experts india so first we would like to thank all the participants who have joined in today uh, with me i have mr anirudh sarkar so it's a very special show again uh, uh, anirudh is is the chief investment officer at uh, quest investment advisors he brings about uh, more than 15 years of experience out of which he has worked with ifl for almost 11 years as a portfolio manager uh, and he managed ifl multicap pms which was one of the best performing pmss by then and uh, you know won couple of awards as well in terms of delivering the highest possible deliverables in the hand of investors so uh, so currently now he is heading uh, uh, the investment team <coughs> Uh, as a chief investment officer, and uh, ever since he has taken over, uh, things are shaping up well because his one of the areas of expertise is to identify themes at an early stage of their growth curve before they really, you know, take off well and ride through those growth journey, which is equally important. Uh, so what we thought is today, uh, you know, it's a very uh, different time, volatile time. Uh, we saw what happened uh, last to last week and. and uh, i'm sure all of you are curious to know where are we headed uh, both as an economy and and as a stock market so we thought we'll take the opportunity of uh, inviting mr sarkar today uh, uh, can you hear me uh, yeah yeah okay so uh, uh, welcome on the show of ask the expert uh, anirudh uh, uh, as you know that was we keep organizing these sort of knowledge based sessions and last time we recorded one session with you So, firstly, thank you so much for accepting our request and taking the time from out from your busy schedule and joining me today. It's always, uh, I would say, it's always uh, exciting to interact with investors and you know participants like you because it also gives us a different perspective of what the other side thinks about. Sure, sure. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, you were saying something. No, I'm saying like you know, it's always good to interact with investors and you know participants like you. So I think you know I'm more than happy to engage with you and your investors in this particular interaction. All right, thank you. So yeah, I can see that good number of investors have joined in now, so we can start the session. Uh, so you know, uh, these are different times. You know, uh, Anirudh and uh, what what I would request is one. A uh, lot of people have requested me that you know since you are joining in, so why don't we start with outlook of equity market which is generally a uh, 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 session which is followed by the main core uh, theme but this time i would request if you could throw some more lights on where are we headed and then we would oh, like sure. to know about your funds and how do you manage and what investment philosophy followed at uh, at quest investment advisors or do you sure sure so thanks for having me here and you know uh, having me to interact with uh, your investors so i think you know uh, the first thing which i'll try to touch base upon is uh, as you mentioned rightly that you know investors might right now i think you know whether it is a small investor or it's a large investor i think practically everyone is uh, going through that whole phase of confusion which is that you know where are we headed and uh, i think this is because you know, if you look at our topic of discussion today you know when the macros overshadow the micros i think this is very apt uh, you know in this uh, small image you know i have tried to show that you know uh, basically whatever swings in the market we see whether it's uh, you know uh, the ups or the downs in the market which we call the bull market or the bear market i think it's basically a play between uh, the macro and the micro fundamentals which gets reflected in the investor emotions and sentiments and ultimately that is where we call the fear and the greed which is you know what is basically an outcome of uh, these things happening uh what we are seeing right now i would say is extreme fear and uh, also it is kind of you know very evident that you know you have multiple things at play so um if i just you know and i'm just put down these points because in, in fact you know the most recent investor letter also which uh, i sent out to my investors in that i tried to capture these questions which is kind of you know haunting investors right now so let's look at each of these aspects and you know then see that you know where does things stand because you know typically in the market you know there are two parts which move the market one is uh, events and one is earnings and uh, we'll come to the earnings part subsequently but we'll talk about the events because you know that is something which is overshadowing uh, all our uh, you know investment rationals uh, the first and foremost is you know the russian conflict and i think you know that is something which has come out of the blue it was not in the 
making and it was not in kind of anyone's uh, expectations a couple of months back that you know we'll come to this stage that you know Russia will invade Ukraine so I think you know uh, the typical thought process or the fear which comes is that you know have we all have we already entered the next world war and you know can this escalate into a major kind of a global military conflict uh, if I look at the last 10-15 days of this conflict I think it's pretty evident that it will not escalate into a major military war and uh, that can be seen from the fact that neither US nor the NATO countries want to send any of their troops to help Ukraine. They are all being at the backside, you know, saying to Ukraine that, you know, we are there, we'll put all economic sanctions, etc., etc., on Russia, but we don't want to send any troops or any of our military equipments into Ukraine to help you. So I think that is a very, very clear sign that, you know, uh, they don't want any military conflict with Russia. And uh, having said that, I would say that, you know, where both Ukraine and Russia stand today, I think it's a matter of time, whether a week or two weeks or 10, 15 days, or maybe by end of this month, will definitely come to a solution. Either it will be, you know, Russia will be uh, making its aggressive stance all the more aggressive and will venture all in and uh, capture Ukraine, or it will come to the negotiation table with some I would say, you know, they have to give something to take something. So there will be some <clears throat> negotiations happening. And finally, I think this is going to see an end to it, maybe in a month's uh, time or so. So that is addressing the major elephant in the room that I don't see this conflict uh, beyond a certain period of time. And if you go back in the history, I think every war comes to an end. It could end in 15 days, 30 days, 60 days, but it comes to an end. Uh, the second biggest worry, which is uh, uh, kind of you know, on top of everyone's mind, is that you know inflation. And inflation is, uh, again, something which is being talked about, not just in India, but I think in the rest of the world. And uh, definitely it has its uh, the repercussions on earnings. It has its repercussions on the household savings, uh, etc. And on top of that, you know, when you have the oil prices shooting over the roof and the commodity prices shooting over the roof, the fear is that, you know, has will inflation kill the economic growth, which uh, was expected to pick up post the pandemic. Uh, now, uh, inflation, if you look at uh, where uh, inflation is coming from, it is more of a supply side inflation and it's not a demand led inflation. And uh, that is where, you know, uh, I have been of the view that uh, this inflation cannot be tamed by increasing the interest rates because uh, a supply side inflation, which has been caused because of uh, supply chain constraints, the logistics issues, uh, sanctions on exporting countries, etc., has led to your commodity prices shooting up. And this has not, this has nothing to do with the demand going up overnight. So hence, raising the interest rates will not be the right answer to uh, getting inflation down. Uh, once these conflicts get over, obviously, oil, uh, the oil cannot sustain at $130, $140. It has to come below 100 uh, similarly, the commodity prices, you know, they cannot sustain where it is right now. You know, when we talk to some companies, the sense we get that uh, there is no buyer of these commodities at these prices. And there's a very uh, excellent line that it's only the high prices which kills the high prices, which means that since the prices are so high, nobody will buy it. And that's the reason the prices will come down. So, for example, if you see in India also, the oil marketing companies, People are expecting that just after the elections are over, uh, you know, on 7th of March, you'll find the oil prices going up, but it has not gone up because our oil marketing companies have almost like 36 to 40 days of inventory. So they also don't plan to buy at these levels. So eventually, you know, the prices will cool off. So that's the reason I believe that, you know, this inflation is also something which will come off uh, from where we stand as of now to much more comfortable levels. The third fear which investors have right now is about interest rates going up in the US. And I think uh, this is not something which is a new shock. I think uh, for the last one year, the US Fed has been talking about uh, the interest rates, which is likely to go up by March 2022. Uh, just a month back, they were talking about a 50 bips hike. Now, all of a sudden, because of the uh, geopolitical events, that 50 bips is now expected to be around 25 bips. Uh, and if you ask me to uh, be honest, I think the Fed is also likely to go uh, increase the rate by 25 bits, which will be more like a symbolic raise and not something which they really intend to do. So I think that, you know, the interest rate is going up in the US by 25 bits or 50 bips over the next uh, one quarter is not a very, very big 
uh, event for the emerging markets uh, outflow because uh, countries in the emerging markets have been seeing the outflows for the last one year. So it's not something that, you know, post the raise, the outflow will be more. Uh, now that again, you know, brings many people to think that uh, will RBI also increase rates in India? And this is I one debate, you know, uh, many HNI investors keep asking that, you know, will RBI also increase rates in India? Uh, I have been on the strong view that I don't see interest rates going up in India in the next one quarter at least. Could be sometime in the second half of the financial year, but not uh, uh, in at least the first half. Because if I go by all the commentary and the views of the government and RBI, I think the focus is more on pushing for growth. And uh, when you're pushing for growth, you do not want your interest rates to go up. And uh, in that type of an environment, uh, there is no reason uh, that you know interest rates will go up in India. Uh, uh, and I think when you talk to banks, banks have been saying that uh, borrowing is not happening. So when banks are complaining of borrowing, I don't think so. You know, your inflation can be tamed by increasing the interest rates. Uh, at the same time, you know, when the government is also pushing for ownership of homes, capex cycle, I think uh, the very objective of keeping interest rate low to drive uh, capex cycle to drive the home ownership is something which goes counterintuitive if one looks at uh, you know tells RBI to increase the rates. So we don't see the rates going up uh, in India. Uh, and the last of it, you know, what fear people had uh, over the last 15 days is what if BJP loses in the UP elections. And I think uh, BJP has done much, much better compared to what many of the political analysts were expecting, not just in UP, but I think in the other states also where, um, you know, it has come back in power. So I think overall, if you look at this slide, you know, it is giving you an impression that uh, the fears which have been there or the macros which were kind of, you know, overshadowing the investor, uh, the investor decisions, these are all some things which will come to an end, whether it's a war, whether it's the election outcome, uh, Fed policy meet, which will happen over the weekend. So that always brings me to the point that it's a time to start looking at the micros. And that is where, you know, I've been focusing investors over the last 10, 15 days that look at the earnings, because, you know, that is where I'm getting a lot of comfort. So if I see where FI23 or FI24 earnings are going to be. Uh, it gives me a lot of comfort that we are very, very attractively priced based on FI24 numbers. So if I talk about the Nifty earnings on FI23, it is expected to be around 885 to 900 rupees. And uh, FI24, the Nifty uh, EPS is expected to be around 1000 rupees plus minus. Now, if I look at FI24 at 1000 rupees EPS, and if you talk about uh, Nifty sitting at say 16,400, you're actually talking about a 16.4p. Now, based on the next two years numbers at 16p, I don't think so market is expensive. And at the same time, if I talk about the earnings growth, which can happen in the uh, next two years, I think uh, uh, before the conflict, people were, uh, the street was expecting around 17 to 18% uh, earnings growth. Uh, if I take some margin contraction, some EBITDA margins impact, etc., I think this margin, this uh, earnings growth will come down to around uh, 14 to 15% or 15 to 16%. Now, with a 15, 16% earnings growth over the next two years and with a market P of around 16.4, I don't see a reason why I should say that, you know, equity markets in India are expensive. So it's not that, you know, when we are, when I'm saying that, you know, you should, investors should be looking at deploying additional funds in the market at this point of time, and investors should not exit equities, but rather hold, or if there's additional liquidity, one should put in more money. It's not without any base. The very base is that markets are not expensive. Earnings are going to grow at 15, 16%. Uh, I'll also talk about, you know, I'll focus on the sectors where I see the earnings are going to be the uh, most uh, important. And with the 15, 16% earnings growth market sitting at a 16P, I don't see a reason why uh, one should not be looking at uh, mid-teens to high-teen types of returns over the next couple of years from the equity markets in India. Uh, now, if you remember, you know, uh, one quote strategy, uh, which we have always in our portfolio strategy is the sector rotation strategy. And uh, that basically goes around the philosophy that uh, you know uh, that goes around the philosophy that uh, different sectors go through earning cycle different sectors uh, perform differently in the different uh, market cycles and the idea is that uh, you need to be in the right sector at the right time 
Yeah, I was coming so, to that, Anirudha. In fact, I wanted to ask you this question is, you know, you are always ahead of the curve in terms of identifying those themes. So if you could uh, talk to us uh, that how do you manage to identify them at an early stage of their growth curve or the change? Sure, sure. And then talk about the sectors. So what do you Absolutely. So if I go back and see, you know, in the last so many bull runs we have seen in the market, I think, you know, it's pretty evident that, you know, uh, in each bull run or maybe in the each market rally, it is not always that, you know, everything has moved. There are sectors which really do well and there are sectors which really underperform. So that has been, uh, you know, uh, I would say my core strategy, which is focusing on the sectors where uh, the valuation is on your side, earnings growth is going to be uh, the highest and also the risk reward is in favor. And uh, where you have uh, enough visibility with regard to execution of projects, execution of uh, orders, or maybe, you know, earnings growing uh, faster than maybe double the industry growth rate. So if I see the last four or five bull runs, like, you know, 99, 2000, we are all aware that, you know, how IT as a sector, uh, you know, it outperformed the old economic companies. As you can see, you know, your Infosys, Wipro outperforming your SBI and BHLs of the world. Coming forward to the 2006 to 2008 rally, you will see how, you know, the capital goods. So it just went around, you know, capital goods, which did not do well earlier, capital goods outperformed your defensive sectors. And you had companies in the real estate infra sector outperforming the defensives like HUL, like hands down. Uh, coming forward to the pre-pandemic rally, we saw that, you know, the, uh, the growth-oriented consumer stocks, you know, they were outperforming the cyclicals. And that, if you remember the time from 2018, 19, you know, uh, the growth-oriented companies, you know, they were outperforming hands down. Your Asian paints, Pedialyte, HULs of the world, and you had the cyclicals like your metal stocks, uh, the real estate stocks, which are heavily underperforming. Uh, Post-pandemic things again turned around. You had the cyclicals uh, outperforming hands down uh, compared to the defensives, like you know your HULs of the world. Now this always, you know, this comparison, what I try, why I try to show is that, you know, this actually gives you an impression that though we might all be saying that, you know, we are long-term investors, but it's very important to identify that every sector, whether it is an FMCG, consumer, metals, real estate, banking, IT, uh, cap goods, infra, everything goes through a cycle. And it is very important that not just when to be in a sector, but also when to be out of a sector. Because if you're able to be out of a sector when the cycle is on a downturn and allocate that money to the right sector with a higher allocation, that is where your big alpha creation will happen. And uh, if I look at my portfolio construct over the last uh, seven years of managing the PMS, I think uh, at any point of time, you'll find that the top four or five sectors make up 80% of the portfolio. And these sector allocations are very, very agnostic to the benchmark sectoral allocations which means that, you know, there is no uh, focus that, you know, if a particular sector is very high on the benchmark, I need to have a similar allocation in my portfolio. Uh, now comes the more important point that, you know, what do we see in a sector and, you know, where do we see the next pockets of opportunity? And uh, also uh, this, I'll explain the sectors by showing that, you know, what are the things which we are seeing in the sectors, which will give you an idea that, you know, how do we identify these sectors? Uh, the first and foremost sector, which if you remember, you know, almost like 14, 15 months back, you know, we had gone overweight on the real estate and home improvement sector. Now, uh, you know, when I go back in the period from September, October, November, 2020, you know, when we had gone overweight on the real estate sector, uh, it was a sector which was against, uh, you know, I would say against the market consensus which is like, you know, uh, there were very few people on the street who wanted to talk about the real estate sector. But uh, in fact, now on hindsight, many people ask me that, you know, how were you able to identify the sector will do well? So these were some of the indicators, like, you know, when we do our checks on the ground about interacting with, uh, you know, the business channels, interacting with the uh, distribution channels, interacting with managements of the companies, we got a sense that, you know, uh, the transaction was coming back in the sector. Uh, the end users who were sitting on the edge of, you know, either to rent or to buy, they were getting into that phase wherein they were turning in, into the buyers. Now, that was because affordability had improved after almost 8-10 years, uh, which gives you a sense that, you know, if you look at uh, the prices of, you know, the property, uh, the properties, they have practically remained flat for most part of the last 7-8 years. 
uh, on the contrary, the income growth has been there uh, in the economy over the last seven to eight years. And uh, along with that, the low interest rate, which was there in the economy, that was kind of the lowest rate we have seen ever in our life. Now, these things were making the affordability of the homes very, very attractive, wherein, you know, the prices have remained flat for the last seven, eight years. You have seen a decent amount of income growth. And along with that, your interest rates are at the lowest. So these three things make the affordability of the homes as very, very attractive. So that gave us the first kind of an itch that, you know, we need to look at the sector. Uh, when we spoke to the builders, we saw that the pattern of buyers is very different compared to the earlier. Wherein the earlier cycle of 2007 to 2011, most of the buyers were the investors. This time around, most of the buyers were the end users. And that gives you a lot of comfort because these end users are the people who are going to actually occupy the house. And they are the ones who are going to spend a decent amount on doing up the interiors. So that's why along with the real estate, we also went overweight on the home improvement. Uh, another thing which we had observed over the last uh, four or five years is the consolidation in the industry, uh, in which we saw a large number of unorganized players going out of business, which means many of the small, small uh, you know, builders and players who were there in the business. Uh, they were forced to go out of business because of the liquidity crunch, because of you know, sales not happening. And uh, the larger established brand names became bigger and bigger. And that is something which again gives you a lot of comfort that, you know, now post the implementation of the policy from the government, uh, you had executions happening in the sector, you had, uh, you know, financial, uh, the closures happening, uh, there was no delay in the projects, which was always an issue earlier, you know, projects used to get launched and not uh, get delivered for 10 years. So all these things were getting addressed and, you know, these were the things which gave us a confidence that, you know, this is a uh, sectoral rally, which is going to be there for a very, very long time. Uh, along with that, another indicator which was there, which kind of gave us an indication that, you know, these indi uh, I'm talking about these indicators just to give a sense of what are the things we look at to arrive at, you know, a sector call. The other thing which we were seeing in the sector is that the number of the, the new launches happening in the real estate sector was significantly lower than in the past. Now, that leads to your inventory is getting exhausted. As unsold inventory gets exhausted in the uh, sector and the new launches don't happen as much as it was happening in the past, that leads to some stability in the prices also. Because you know earlier when uh, you know uh, there were a number of unsold inventories are very very high, there were a large number of distressed sales used to happen and that used to erode the price. So those things were not happening and demand had come back. You know if I talk about the demand, which is the most important for the last four, five, six quarters, you know, demand has been extremely, extremely strong. And that you can again attribute to the fact that uh, both the IT sector and the non-IT urban working class, they have seen their income levels going up. So it was a multitude of all these factors, you know, which gave us the confidence that, you know, the, the real estate sector is here to stay. And in fact, even now when I speak to some clients, you know, uh, investors ask me that, you know, um, is the sectoral uh, upside over and done? I, I believe we are not even uh, in the middle of the real estate sector rally. And I think uh, this sectoral rally is going to be there for the next couple of years. And uh, this is going to be from the fact that ownership of homes is still very low in the urban and also income levels are continuing to uh, re uh, remain very strong. And I think, you know, this is a sectoral trend which will continue to do well. And also along with the real estate, ancillaries to the real estate, which is your uh, home improvement companies like uh, electric wires and cables, appliances, the tiles, bathroom fittings, etc., which will continue to do very, very well. Uh, the second sector where uh, we believe that, you know, the sectoral uptrend will continue as of now is the banks and financials. Now, uh, if you remember, you know, uh, one sector is banks which we have been mostly underweight for most part of the pandemic. Uh, if I talk about the last two years, in the last two years, almost 18 months, the first 18 months, we have been heavily underweight on the banks and financials. And this was for the reason that uh, because of the pandemic, you know, we found that uh, there were concerns with regard to NPA recovery from the retail side. There were concerns with regard to the, the loan growth happening. And at the same time, you know, the RBI regulation about, you know, extending of the moratorium, these were things which was definitely not a very, very comfortable things for the banks and the financials. Also, uh, 
past so before pandemic you know the whole nps cycle which was seen in uh, you know corporate banks like uh, sbi icici access those had made the valuations of these banks very very attractive and i would say the pandemic was like the final nail on the coffin wherein the valuations had reached the trough now with those things in mind you know uh, we started picking up uh, many of these financials and uh, if i see where we stand today i think you know uh, banks like icis and sbi which remain our overweight portfolio allocations within the banking and financial if you look at their roe profile you know they have drastically improved over the last couple of years from where they stood say in the bottom of march 18 or even march 19 wherein that you know because of the nps cycle their roes were like you know in single digits or for case of sbi it was even in the negative from that, those levels the roes have come at levels which are comparable to your hdfcs and kotaks of the world now where your uh, you know your roe profiles are comparable but your valuations are a fraction that becomes a very very compelling reason why to go overweight on those banks and that's the reason you know we have a larger allocation in our portfolio to corporate banks like icici and sbi and in fact um, i would say that i'm sure you are much more aware uh, sbi being one of our top holdings in our portfolio very few pms managers will venture out into an sbi being one of the top holdings in their portfolio so our view was that banks like sbi and icici were in the past uh the most i would say uh, affected because of the npa cycle they had the highest npa provisions and now with uh, npa resolutions happening uh, with nclt and the ibc uh with the money coming back into the economy and to the system banking system these are the guys who will get the biggest chunk of the recovery and uh, these are the guys who will get the biggest uh, capital inflow if i have to say and that is exactly what we are seeing with you know big cases like bhushan steel diwan housing air india etc all these cases coming out uh, banks like sbi icici are going to be the biggest uh, beneficiaries of you know these uh, capital flows uh, which are happening back so we believe that banks and financials definitely are going to continue to do well and uh, thanks to the last i would say 4 5 months of the sharp correction we have seen in the banking stocks because of the fi outflows because fis typically hold very large allocations to banks and with their outflows happening uh, it has made the banking stocks very 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 attractive wherein that you know many of them are now quoting at the similar valuations where they were almost a year back now that is something which gives us a lot of comfort that you know with uh, the banking um, index which typically you know if you look at historical this bottom chart if you see uh, bank index has typically outperformed nifty but uh, for the last couple of years we are seeing how bank index has heavily underperformed nifty if i just talk about the mean reversion from where we are right now i think you know we are looking at a picture wherein uh, banks as a sector banking and financial as a sector will definitely outperform the broader market uh, we can say to some extent that you know because of inflation or because of you know uh, growth being a bit low we might not see that type of a recovery but even then in that perspective on a relative basis we expect that you know they will outperform the broader market the third sector where we are currently very bullish on is uh, the whole auto and auto ancillary space and uh, this is again something which you know um, we believe uh, is a good opportunity both on the domestic side as well as on the export op uh, opportunity uh, with the whole migration to the ev uh, shortage of semiconductors which is there and uh, along with the government pli scheme i think these three are the i would say uh the right ingredients wherein i see a lot of opportunity in the auto and auto ancillary space the reason for that is that you know with the shortage of the chips you know most of the companies are running on a backlog of 6 to 7 months so uh that gives you a visibility that for the next 8 9 10 12 months there's enough order book for execution and uh, as the shortage of chips is decreasing as we speak i think you know you will find uh, most of these plants running at full capacity Uh, which will get reflected in the earnings uh, one uh, you know we can have one debate on that saying that because of the rise in commodity prices you will find some impact in the margins for the auto yeah. companies which yeah. was expected to recover but i think uh, that is something which will get sorted out in a quarter or so if i am talking about a slightly longer term horizon from 4 to 6 quarters i think the margin impact from the rising input cost is something which will get passed on eventually and uh, in fact that was one channel check which we did is that uh, our prices being passed on 
And uh, if you look at Maruti, if you look at Tata Motors, both of them have been taking price hikes continuously. And uh, when we spoke to some of the wholesale dealers that, you know, has the orders cancelled because of price hike. So the, I would say the similar answer we got from all of them that, you know, there is no cancellation of orders because people who have been buying these cars, the new models and all, they are not bothered if you charge them 20,000, 30,000 rupees extra. So there has been no cancellations because typically what you see, if you look at our exposure also, we are more exposed to the passenger vehicle side. And passenger vehicles are less elastic to demand on price hike compared to the bikes and the scooters because the bikes and scooters are bought by the, by the low income group. And uh, that is where the income elasticity is higher. The demand elasticity is higher. So that is the segment which we are avoiding right now because we don't want to venture out in the bikes and the scooter space because you have too much of disruption from the EV makers also. But uh, we are bullish on the four-wheeler space, passenger vehicle, and also on the commercial vehicle side as demand is going to pick up after almost six, seven years, the CV cycle is likely to pick up. Uh, the whole migration to EV is also something which is opening a lot of opportunity for many of the auto ancillary companies. And uh, thanks to the PLI scheme also, which the government has come out with, I think, you know, we are seeing India as a major export hub for uh, many of the auto ancillary components. In fact, uh, uh, some of the portfolio companies which we have, in fact, one portfolio company which we have, which is Bosch. So the parent of Bosch is looking at making India Bosch unit as one of its export hub. And uh, things like these gives us a lot of confidence that, you know, MNC auto ancillary companies, which are kind of, you know, in a very sweet spot, wherein the parent wants to make India export hub, government is giving you PLI schemes. And there is also enough uh, kind of, you know, unmet demand and the whole EV migration is going to uh, give you a lot of opportunities. So these are areas where I see that, you know, if I look beyond the current set of events happening with a two-year, three-year, four-year horizon, there's enough, uh, you know, uh, alpha creation which can be done in this space. Uh, the fourth sector remains my uh, all-time favorite, which has been kind of my favorite for the last 15-18 uh, months, which is the IT and IT sector. And uh, in all my interactions, you know, I've been saying that, you know, IT sector is going to be there for the next 12-18 months, 24 months also, because that gives me uh, the confidence I get is from the very fact, which is very, very simple, elaborated in this chart, which is uh, basically trying to show what is going to be the IT expenditures happening over the next couple of years. So if I see, uh, you know, the whole um, IT software expenditures, you know, you're looking at this IT services expenditure. Typically, it used to be around, you know, two to three percent in that range. Two to three percent was the typical IT uh, services growth, which was visible. And that's why, you know, most companies in India, they should grow marginally higher than that. Around four to five percent was the growth of most Indian large IT companies. In the last 18 months, that growth has gone up from, you know, uh, 4 5% to anywhere like 14 15%. And I'm talking about the Indian IT companies. And internationally, if I look, that growth figure has gone up to around 10 11%, which might moderate to say around 8%, uh, 9% for the next uh, 36 months. Now, if you're talking about an international IT services growth of around 8 9% for the next 36 months, Indian companies can easily grow at around uh, 14 to 15%, which is almost like 5-6% higher than the global IT services growth rate. And uh, specific companies within the IT in India, like one of our portfolio companies like Tata Alexi, you know, they are looking at a growth of around 25% plus. Now, where on earth do you get a 25% earnings growth visibility for the next 24-36 months? So this is the type of, you know, space I believe that, you know, uh, there is enough kind of uh, growth opportunity which is happening in there. And uh, now, if you ask me that, you know, how we went overweight on the IT sector. Now, when I go back, you know, 15, 18 months back, 18 months back, you know, and see uh, what was the, you know, outlook on the sector. You know, when the pandemic had just begun, the first uh, hypothesis was of the street that IT sector will be the worst hit sector. Because, you know, with travel uh, coming to a stop, uh, overseas travel coming to a stop. Typically, uh, people associate IT employees as, you know, uh, going overseas for the client side. Now, when that was coming to a halt, you know, uh, you had uh, uh, the first thought was that IT uh, projects will come to a halt. But when we interacted with some of 
the companies, we got a sense that, you know, the whole migration towards the working from home is happening on a very, very different footing compared to other industries. And within a month or so, practically every employee was working at the same pace at what they were working earlier. Even the customers were very, very okay with, uh, you know, the work getting done from home. Now, with that in mind, our view was that IT as a sector will be the biggest beneficiary of pandemic because as world comes to a halt and everybody is working from home, uh, businesses will have to migrate to the cloud and uh, companies in the uh, whole, uh, the cloud migration, which are there, the larger US companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, etc. They all do projects with Indian companies and the whole migration to the cloud is where you know the uh, different uh, the, the cloud technologies which indian uh, it companies also specialize on those are things wherein you'll find a lot of growth opportunity and uh, the interesting part of the whole pandemic was that you know uh, there were sectors there were sectors and companies which have seen very very less of it implementation and uh, when we speak to some of the companies in the it sector you know they say that you know these are companies which have hardly come to us ever and you know now they're talking to us about it projects so these are kind of you know uh sectors wherein uh historically they would not have ventured into the it and uh, these were the new opportunities and the new deal events which were happening for the sector and if i look at the pipeline for the deals even for the next 12 months 15 months i think is extremely extremely strong so that gives me a lot of comfort that you know it as a sector is going to be there for the next uh 15 18 months and that is where, uh, you know, will be kind of the fourth uh, a big exposure for us in our portfolio. Also, a good indicator is, you know, the number of employees you are hiring. And I think uh, after a very long time, we have seen the number of uh, the new hires happening in the whole IT sector, which is at kind of the record levels. Whether you're talking about the fresh hires from engineering colleges or, uh, you know, uh, the professionals who are already working. I think, uh, you know, this is giving you a lot of comfort that, with the type of uh, salary increases, you know, the IT sector is seeing, I think this is kind of a sector which is going to be an overweight allocation in our portfolio. In fact, some of them just to add, not able to even hire, the number of people are so less in the industry and it's a very skillful job, you know, so we'll have to kind of uh, offer jobs to freshers and inviting them to join. That's a Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's a big shortage also, like, you know, there's a big shortage of uh, the right skilled people and uh, there's a lot of attrition happening I, you know in fact i have not seen this level of attrition which is happening in the it sector so all this gives you a thing that you know this is a there's enough demand of new projects uh, project executions because uh, earlier you know there was a concern that a lot of employees are sitting on the bench now with the type of uh, projects there's hardly anyone who's there on the bench so these are again indicators that you know it as a sector is going to be there for a pretty long time the fifth and last sector where we are very bullish on is the chemicals and we have been bullish on this space for the last 18-24 months and the major reason for that is that you know you're seeing a lot of value migration happening in India in the chemical sector wherein earlier you know you used to only find the commodity chemicals uh, companies doing well uh, which was to supply the bulk of the chemicals but uh, what we have seen in the last 24 months is that a lot of these companies have migrated up the value chain and they are now doing more of the high-end uh, chemicals uh, manufacturing, which was typically done, say, in Europe or in uh, other uh, Asian countries. Now, that is a very big uh, change for Indian chemical companies, which is uh, moving up the value chain. And uh, thanks to the whole China plus one uh, thought process of international buyers that, you know, with more and more conflict happening in Russia, China, I think uh, the European customers and American customers, they are more now uh, willing or rather they have to look at an alternative and the only country which has a decent uh, I would say size and also companies working in that space uh, is India. So uh, growth wise I have no concerns on uh, you know the chemical sector which if you look at uh, uh, this first table you see you know consistently the sector has been growing at 20 percent plus and uh, this gives a lot of comfort that you know this growth is going to be there and the other thing which gives me comfort in the sector is the capex plans in the sector so the capex plans are very very high and i think you know that is where uh, i would say that uh, it gives me visibility over the next 36 months that chemicals as a sector is going to continue to give good returns valuation becomes always a concern because you know the chemical sector has seen a massive massive p multiple expansion 
some of my portfolio companies, you know, when we had entered, they were at uh, 14, 15 P, which might be now trading at 25 to 30 P multiples. But I believe that uh, I don't see a P multiple expansion happening there, but I see a continuation of earnings growth, which will get reflected in the price movement also. So I think uh, this is the third sector, uh, fifth sector, which is an overweight uh, allocation in my portfolio. So these were the broad thought process around, you know, what are the sectoral allocations where we like and, you know, what we want to kind of have an allocation, uh, which goes in sync with uh, our core strategy of sector rotation and uh, focusing on sectors uh, where we believe the earnings growth is going to be kind of higher than the broader market. <clears throat> uh, an important point again in our portfolio is, uh, in a portfolio construct, uh, is about company rotation. And... Uh, that is an extension of sector rotation, which is uh, within the same sector. Like you know, if I talk, if I spoke about, say, the real estate sector, for, ex for an ex uh, example. Uh, now, do I want to buy a DLF or a Prestige or a Shobha, etc.? That will again depend on the valuation. Like you know, say, for example, I might be having a DLF earlier, but uh, valuation-wise, maybe Prestige looks attractive now or a Shobha looks attractive now. I don't mind moving from a DLF to a Prestige. So maintaining the same sectoral allocation, we will move between the uh, companies within the same sector. Uh, we have done similar shifts within the auto space also in the past, wherein moving from a Maruti to a Tata Motors DVR, uh, which has again given us like a 150%, 200% alpha in the switch itself. So these company rotations are also done, which is a part of our overall portfolio uh, of philosophy. So these are the broad thoughts about you know the market and uh, what we would like to you know um, kind of uh, do in our portfolios we'll be more than happy to have any questions from your end or from anyone <clears throat> sure so what we'll do is we'll open the forum for q a so if any of the participant has any question uh, please feel free to ask so my uh, my first question is uh, uh, anirudh so thank you so much for the detailed presentation so so as you mm -hmm. said that there are three four sectors which look good but what are the two three sectors you think may not do well uh, one, because of the issues that under the economies are undergoing at the moment and to the inflation, which is really going to affect. Yeah. See, I think one sector which might have its pain is the whole uh, FMCG consumer space. Now, that is a space because uh, the concern is that, you know, there uh, the input uh, costs are very high. So, you know, the whole inflation part, which I spoke about, uh, <clears throat> that is something which is going to hurt uh, the uh, FMCG basket, the consumer basket. Now you can ask me that, you know, won't it affect the other sectors? Now in the other sectors, as I spoke about auto, for an example, auto also falls into the consumption, but there the possibility of the companies to pass on the price is much, much higher compared to say a uh, Britannia or uh, Nestle, you know, wherein they want to pass on the price hike to the consumers. It is very, very price sensitive. Now say, for example, in the biscuits or maybe the, the low-end uh, FMCG personal care products, even a 10% price hike is a very, very big price jump for the users of those components. So price hike of 10% might lead to a volume degrowth happening because there the options are many. Like, you know, if uh, an HUL increases price and a Dabur or a Marico does not increase the price, you know, they, you will find the shift of the customer happening over there. So as a whole, FMCG is one space I feel is not going to do very well in the next uh, 6 to 12 months. Uh, the other space where uh, I would not say I'm negative, but I would say I would want to wait for some more time to uh, see action happening is the whole, uh, the infra space. Uh, the infra space is one space where I would want uh, things to show more visibility of projects actually happening because... Uh, uh, the input costs, in, again, the infra space is something which uh, will impact their project margins uh, significantly over the uh, next six months. With metal prices, cement prices, everything going above the roof, I think, you know, uh, projects might get delayed over there, executions might get delayed. And that is something, uh, you know, wherein I believe that we would still want to wait and watch before taking a call over there. Okay, so next question comes from uh, Badrish Kaur. As the COVID is not over yet, what are your views on pharma industry? Will it be considered under what sort of categories? I think practically, uh, you know, the war in Russia and Ukraine has finished COVID. 
because I think these days uh, nobody talks about COVID. Uh, so apart from the jokes, I would say that, you know, uh, I believe that uh, COVID as such is behind us. And uh, I think uh, the last wave, which was the Omicron wave, that gave us the indication that uh, most of the population, at least in India, is uh, well vaccinated and well uh, immunity, uh, the immunity level is pretty high. And uh, there are talks about the fourth wave starting in June, July or something. So uh, I would say that, you know, uh, there is no fear from COVID as such now. And now with everything has opened up practically and the schools was the last thing government had to open. And now I think they've opened up the schools also. So I think COVID is something which is not in the calculation and any future waves which will happen, I think <clears throat> that will, we'll have to see how, it, uh, how much is the intensity. Coming to the outlook on the pharma industry, I would say pharma as such, we are bullish. And I would not relate the bullishness in the pharma to COVID or non-COVID. I would say overall pharma, Indian companies are in a space right now wherein growth opportunity is very high because many of the pharma companies have now done backward integration. Earlier, they used to import from China and then you know uh, do the processing and sell it overseas. Now with many of the uh, European and US customers wanting an alternative to China, the whole China plus one opportunity is also working in favor for the Indian pharma companies, wherein uh, <clears throat> uh, companies who have done good backward integration are becoming a good option for international customers to move their businesses from China to India. The next question we want to uh, deployment strategy at the moment. Like you're deploying 100% or if somebody starts PMS, so you deploy over a period of two months, how is it? As of now, we are deploying roughly between 70 to 80%. And uh, for the new clients, we are keeping around 80, 20, 18 to 20% cash. And uh, that uh, cash level also over the next uh, one month will get deployed. And it's not that I'm negative on the market. It's just that, you know, with the type of swings happening in the market, you would want to time the market to some extent. Wherein that, you know, with the type of swings happening in the market, you might get a better entry point uh, over the next one month. The next question is from Mr. Ritesh Singh. Tech businesses in India is growing continuously. So what are your views on tech-based businesses irrespective of their loss-making nature? Good question. I think he's talking about the new age businesses. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so basically the new age businesses which are there, you know, honestly speaking, I have not been a very good fan of them as an investor. Though I've been a customer of all those businesses. And that is something I would say is a big... Uh, uh, you know, big confusion that, you know, I'm a customer of all of those businesses, whether it's a Zomato or it's a Policy Bazaar or it's a Nika, etc. But as an investor, I do not want to put my money there because I think uh, <clears throat> ultimately we need to see that where can I make my 15, 18%, 20% types of return in the medium to long run with the minimum risk. So that risk component is something which I don't get answer to in the new age businesses because uh, the issue is that, you know, many of these businesses, you know, uh, their uh, models are such that entry barriers are very low. Now, when your entry barriers are so low, uh, there is enough kind of risk to the business. Now, if I take the example of Zomato for that matter, like, you know, you can say that there's only one Zomato and a Swiggy in the market. But the way Zomato has been putting up money into different businesses, uh, I do not get the comfort that how do I value the business? Like earlier, you know, earlier when internally also, like I'll just share about Zomato, you know, when we were in, uh, evaluating the company during the IPO, we had done all the SOTP valuation of its different businesses, taken a growth rate of the number of users. If it goes up by this much percentage, this much percentage over the next two, three years, what can be kind of the top line, bottom line, et cetera. So those gave us some sense that, okay, this is a fair value at which I would be okay to look at it. Now, post the listing, company has done so many private equity investments. You know, they have invested into four or five startups. Yesterday, there was a news that they are giving a, almost 80 to 100 million of the debt financing to uh, one startup called Blinkit. Now, how do I value these businesses then? You know, if it has become from a, a food ordering and the restaurant business to uh, NBFC, which is giving the, the debt financing to startups, and also putting some money into other startups, then, you know, it's very difficult it's to uh, evaluate that, you know, if any of the startups where they're putting money, it goes bust. It's a complete uh, washout of that investment. On the other side, they can become four or five X also. So there are very, very too many uncertainties. So I would typically stay away from these businesses as an investor. 
uh, only business which I like in that space is Policy Bazaar because I think that is the one which has very low entry barriers, sorry, very high entry barriers because in spite of all the insurance companies having their online uh, presence, still you will find almost all of the insurance companies, they do a tie-up with him. Now, most recently, even LIC has gone done a tie-up with Policy Bazaar because of the type of reach and the database which they have. So that is one space where I believe that, you know, uh, which has a decent kind of uh, business model. But then again, you know, the question comes that, you know, what is the right value or uh, what price you should buy? Very difficult to value again. But I would say in these businesses, it's okay to allocate a very, very small part of your overall portfolio. Even I would not put more than 5% into all the new age companies combined. Next question is, what are the other factors to keep in mind apart from earnings when we think about micros? See, when I talk about uh, evaluating a company, you know, earnings is uh, not the first thing which we see. Like, you know, when we talk about evaluating a new idea, which comes to our table, in fact, the first thing which we talk about and which we discuss in our investment committee is about the management. And uh, that is a, a something which becomes a first filter. And when I say management, it is not just about management ethics. It is about the past track record of the management. So that is very important to see that, you know, has the business been taken by the management through the different business cycles without major impact to its earnings, without major impact to its growth plans? Uh, is the management's execution capability good enough? Because, you know, many times, many managements, they talk big things, but they're not able to execute. Has the management be, been able to execute and delivered much more than what they have promised. Also, it's very important to see that what is the past track record of the management in the previous companies, because many of these managements, they might have worked in previous companies and uh, you might not have a very long track record of that management in the current company, but uh, he might have worked in a previous company and how he has done over there, that gives you a good sense again that you know how the management will do. Now, just to give an example, like, uh, uh, the current, uh, you know, the management of uh, Tata Consumer, he was earlier in uh, Whirlpool. So when he moved from Whirlpool to Tata Consumer, there was a P contraction in Whirlpool and a P expansion in Tata Consumer. Now that gives you a the direct example of what I'm saying that, you know, why we take a bet on the management because people bet that, okay, this guy will do well in the current place because he has done wonders in the earlier place. Uh, that is something which we take a bet on and that is something which we will be evaluating first. Post this, we also see uh, earnings is obviously one part. We also see what is the ROE profile, margin profile. Are these stable to improving? Are the margin profiles stable to improving? ROE is stable to improving. Uh, the leverage on the books. The leverage on the books is something one needs to keep an eye on. And uh, when I say it needs to be keep an, uh, kept an eye on, uh, don't take me otherwise, but also look at companies with high leverage. It might sound very, very different to what many people say that, you know, avoid companies with high leverage. I sometimes say that do keep an eye on companies with high leverage because typically companies which are in the cyclical part of the market, they are the ones which will have a high leverage at the bottom of the cycle. And when the cycle turns, huge cash flows come in, leverage comes off drastically, and then the market gives it a very, very different P multiple. In the last 24 months, we have seen that happening in the metals. We have seen that happening in the real estate. We have seen that happening in the power companies. We have seen that happening in many of the high levered auto companies. So keep an eye on the leverage, take a bet on the high levered businesses, which are run by good management, but they were at the bottom of the cycle. And that is the time you will find them at a good value. So when the cycle is on upturn, say for example, a Tata steel, a Tata power, etc., these were businesses wherein management is excellent, but they were at the bottom of the cycle sitting with high leverage. When the cycle turned, huge cash flows are coming. Now, if I talk about Tata Steel, I think in the next four quarters, they'll go completely debt-free. Now, from sitting at, you know, uh, enormous number of debt, amount of debt to going debt-free after, you know, uh, 10 quarters is something which is one needs to keep an eye on. And if you have caught it at the right time, you would have made exponential money uh, in these businesses. So these are other things which we see apart from just looking at an earnings growth. Yeah, I remember Tata Motors uh, during the COVID time, it had gone to as low as less than 100 rupees. And I remember 
you picking up the stock yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was quoting at 0.4 price to book and you know if you get a, a industrial business at 0.4 price to book without fear of the business going bankrupt i think you know the downside looks very limited from that point of time yeah the other thing is uh, anirudh this is my question uh, personal question so you know from an fii point of view uh, historically they have made good money in india and now that uh, you know some of them have shown concern going to china and investing chinese market now with so much so many uh, things coming up on russia now they will have some reservation to invest their money over there you think then india is the only place which is left out in terms of uh, structured manner that we can attract more money because they have been net seller for over a period of last one year you have put the question in the right frame that uh... Uh, in fact, you know, if you look at the outflows from India, uh, outflows from India is not happening because uh, FIs are negative on India. It is happening because of ETF redemptions from the emerging market basket. Now, typically in the ETF, uh, the emerging market basket, you had uh, different countries which were allocated. Within that, you had India, China, Russia, Brazil, Indonesia, Vietnam. So these were the countries which are allocated within the emerging markets. now within that in the last one year what you have seen is china has gone down heavily on the tech companies now that has changed the perception of the fis towards china uh last few weeks with russia issue happening russia has been removed from the msci emerging market basket now these are the two big pieces which were there in the emerging market now with that happening you know FIs are looking at decreasing their allocations to these. Now, how do you decrease? You have to sell your emerging market ETF. Now, in that sell-off, India is also getting sold. Now, when you talk to FIs, you know when I talk to some of them, you know the sense I get is that you know this money will come back for Indian dedicated funds, and it will not come in the emerging market basket, but it will come say an India-focused fund. So you will find money coming back to India from FIs also. Maybe not immediately. Maybe after a few months, after you know more things settle down internationally, and this money will coming purely for India allocation because within the uh, whole emerging market, gradually it is becoming evident that India is the most stable economy from growth perspective, from demographics, uh, from future potential, from industrial growth. Uh, also the top. Uh, i would say you know the prime minister uh, who's continuing for last 8 years visibility that you know things will continue for the next 5 years so these are things which is giving a lot of comfort in the whole emerging market basket wherein you have conflicts in russia in china you know different type of things happening the consistency of policy is very very high in a country like india and that is i would say you know will attract money but it will not happen immediately it takes some time but till then i think the domestic guys like us are always there to support the market yeah so domestic um, institutional players have been net positive uh, for quite some yeah, yeah i think the domestic investors you know investors also on this call i think you know they have been big support for the market wherein i think you know the domestic retail domestic hni everyone has been buying in the market yeah so that's how it is why did i ask this question particularly to you is because you as an organization have had history of dealing with these fis for for long long period of time the promoters of the company have been involved in talking to them so therefore and then uh, obviously you had your institutional research backing up this so you get to know what's happening in fis market you know you have a clear cut understanding there and when you interact with them you get to know more about it so absolutely absolutely yeah see so uh, the last question before we conclude so a lot of things have covered up uh, in fact there are two 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 three questions which have come up now uh, so if you can take us through your team so how is your team position and uh, you know some investors have shown interest to know more about your your organization so if you could just take us through that sure sure one i'll just put up a slide which will kind of you know please. give some give some visibility on the team please
So Quest as an entity, you know, it's a very old entity <clears throat> and uh, which you must be aware about that, you know, as an entity, Quest is a very old entity, which had started way back in the 1980s. And uh, from 1987 to 2007, we were mostly focused into equity research ideas. And uh, 2007 is wherein we started our first PMS. Uh, we can say as of today, uh, Quest is one of the older PMS houses in the country, which has a 14-year kind of a record. So as of today, you know, if you talk to people, you know, there are some 400 PMS managers in the street. But out of 400 PMS managers, very few of them can show a 14-year kind of a uh, kind of a history, wherein you know you have a decent track record of 14 years. In last 14 and a half years, we would have seen everything. We would have seen the subprime crisis, the Greek crisis, ILFS crisis, pandemic, everything. Now over this period, definitely you know having around uh, 17, 18 percent annualized return over 14 and a half years is something which is really commendable. Uh, talking about the team, uh, company was founded by Mr. Ajay Seth and Mr. Bharat Seth, and uh, they are a part of the investment committee, and uh, they have a decent 30, 40 years experience in the market. Uh, I'm there uh, as a part of the investment uh, team. Uh, I bring along with me around 15 years plus kind of an experience. Uh, along with us, uh, we have our head of research. Saurabh, uh, he has joined us from HDFC Mutual Fund, so he has been with HDFC for almost 13 years. So the team has a very very vast experience, uh, having worked in different uh, uh, industries and different uh, kind of the financial firms. Along with us, uh, we have a team of six analysts, and uh, we track around uh, 180 to 200 companies. So you can say uh, we have a 10-member team which manages all the investment decisions, research, analysis. financial models engagements with companies investment notes etc etc so it's not like a one man show that you know just uh, you know managing the the money at the whims and fancies of uh, of myself so it's a proper investment committee with supported by investment uh, the research team which takes all the calls on the investment ideas okay okay great great Uh, so last two questions so how do you see the stocks in ev sector do you possess any any of that in your portfolio so ev as a sector uh, you know ev is a very small kind of opportunity right now but i think you know there are many uh, i would say opportunities uh, which you can play around the ev now if i say you know i have a tata motors in my portfolio which uh, we spoke about now i think in india if you see tata motors is practically the only option which you have for buying an electric car in the four wheeler space there's hardly anyone uh, who has any models and now i think in the next 18 months you will find all the tata cars coming in the ev option uh, so that is one thing the other thing which we are playing is through tata power uh, because you know tata power is putting up the largest uh, ev charging ecosystem in the country they are putting up around 7000 uh, ev charging stations in the country across different states that is the other way which we are playing uh, it through uh, the third company which we have which might not be a direct correlation to ev but uh, there are talks of you know things happening on that front is the tata chemicals though we have bought tata chemicals for its soda ash business but uh, there is an option value that you know uh, there were talks earlier of them putting up the lithium ion battery in gujarat with a 4000 crore capex now yeah. if and when that thing happens i think it's going to be a good uh, option value opportunity for the company so these are different uh, areas through which we are playing uh, as i mentioned that you know we have some ancillaries auto ancillaries also but they are agnostic to the uh, engine so they are agnostic to uh, uh, internal combustion engine or an ev engine can you uh, now that your presentation is uh, there up and running so if you could uh, show us your performance of last 10 years or 14 years sure sure so this basically shows uh, my earlier performance at uh, ifl when i was managing the ifl multicap pms so this shows uh, the returns for the period which i was managing it so i had launched it in summer of 14 and from december 14 to december of 19 uh, it had given around 19% annualized return compared to a benchmark return of around 8% percent uh, at quest uh, uh, we have uh, the two strategies which is quest multi and quest flagship and uh, quest flagship has a 14 year plus history over this 14 year it has given us 17 and a half percent return compared to a benchmark of around 8.8 a uh, quest multi also has a 7 and a half year kind of a history 
and uh, that has also given like a 17% type of an annualized return so you can see the last two years at quest is uh, where you know the uh, the return has to be compared which is five years of ifl and the last two years of quest over the seven years there has been like a 10% alpha over the benchmark annualized okay so these are some of the names that we would have bought in the last two years so yeah so uh, last two years here, uh, in uh, for the benefit of everyone so uh, all the participants you are requested to please speak to your advisors before you uh, invest in any of these companies we would request you not to do so yeah what do you know yeah, yeah so these are some of the names which we would have bought in our portfolios and uh, as mentioned by you that you know these are not the recommendations these are just to show that what we would have bought some of them we might have already exited as mentioned in the exit price and some of them we continue to hold because we are bullish with a much more long term horizon <clears throat> sure understood so uh, no more question from our side thank you so much for for taking the time out and joining in today anirudh it was a great presentation and great interacting with you always it's always a pleasure uh, all thank right you. Uh, thank you thank you everyone if you have any question please uh, write to me at vikas@iipml.com i'll ensure that we answer all your questions thank you thank you thank you